This is the American Greed Podcast presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. In this episode of American Greed, for nearly four years, a mysterious computer hacker quietly steals millions from the IRS. I'm just kind of blown away. This guy really does know what he's doing. But when he gets too greedy planning his next score, federal agents realize he wants money at any cost. Threats of shootings, innocent people being taken out, law enforcement being shot at. Federal investigators simply call him the hacker. They don't know his name or where he's hiding. IRS Special Agent Denise Medrano does know one thing for certain. The hacker is behind a complex tax return scheme to rip off nearly $5 million from American taxpayers. It was over 1,900 tax returns that we had identified that were associated with him. It's very possible that he had done much more than that. But in May 2008, Medrano and U.S. Postal Inspector James Wilson catch a big break. One of the hacker's accomplices has betrayed him, and he's told the agents where they might be able to find him. This is where the rubber meets the road because the government was losing millions. Now, agents wait anxiously for the hacker to show, hoping to finally lure him from the shadows. We didn't know if he was even in the country. We didn't know if he was Eastern European or somewhere in China or something. The hacker could be anyone and anywhere, but he's a lot closer than investigators realize. He's Daniel Rigmaiden, a reclusive 27-year-old who spent his life in the sun-drenched hills of Northern California. But if you're looking for an easy answer to what makes the hacker tick, Think again, says Arizona Republic reporter Dennis Wagner. It was just almost as if he came out of a cave and there was just not that much history. People wouldn't talk about him. So it's hard to get into his head and figure out what was motivating him. Wagner's been an investigative reporter for three decades, but even he hit a brick wall trying to decipher Rig Maiden. I tried to find family members who would talk to me about him and none of them would even call me back or respond to emails. I tried to find friends from high school that would talk about him, and I never found one. What is known is Rigmaiden grows up in Monterey County, California, south of San Francisco. By the time he graduates high school, he's already sinking into trouble with his computer. In 1998, internet posters accuse him of selling grossly overpriced Beanie Baby stuffed animals and of hijacking their computers to spam others. One complainant warns he's a computer whiz and really needs to be stopped. He's pretty brilliant, and you're just shaking your head going, how does all this fit together? Rig Maiden takes a pass on college. On his webpage, he admits instead he begins creating fake IDs, and eventually he's jailed six months for identity theft. In a rare radio interview, Rick Maiden says he always felt like an outsider. Sometimes society gets overwhelming for someone who doesn't really agree with participating. 
Rick Mason says he gave up on the trappings of modern society. Using stolen identities to mask his whereabouts, he packs up his computer and disappears into the wilderness. Here in the Los Padres National Forest, Daniel Rigmaiden plots his next move. It was just kind of a way to get away from a system that I didn't agree with, I suppose. And I was just kind of taking a break from society at that point. But when Rigmaiden does come down from the mountains, he has more on his mind than restocking his camping supplies. Now he's trying to steal millions from the government's least popular institution, the IRS. Rigmaiden holds up in hotel rooms, scouring websites like the California Death Index. There, he collects the personal records of nearly 700 deceased individuals. Then he begins churning out hundreds of bogus tax returns using an intricate computer system he's designed. He was very sophisticated in the fact that he automated the process so that returns were filed within minutes of each other at a very high volume. He conceals his actions using malware programs called bots. These bots spread viruses that allow him to secretly and untraceably take remote control of random computers around the country. This was all done with individuals not knowing that their computers had been compromised. He has the refunds routed to prepaid debit cards that he hopes to cash before the IRS catches on. Debit cards can receive funds. So on a tax return, it's easy to put an account number and a routing number and it not be a traditional bank account that you walk in and withdraw money from. This debit card can be used anywhere. The hacker's on his way to a $5 million payday, but he has to be quick. I basically had to go out to the ATM machines every day. I mean, got to a point where there was a lot of time spent just kind of walking to ATM machines to, to get money pulled out. He's smart enough to know using the same local ATMs over and over will eventually lead the IRS right to his door. He was adamant about not being exposed, so he had to rely on other people to get his money back to him. The hacker needs a new plan to grab the cash, but he's about to choose the wrong partners in crime to help him out. Daniel Rigmaiden, a.k.a. The Hacker, is living two lives. He's hiding off the grid at a Los Padres campsite. But the reclusive computer genius is also slipping in and out of California hotel rooms, flooding the IRS with bogus tax returns. If his plan works, he should collect nearly $5 million. Rigmaiden had mastered filing the returns. They were filed quickly. They were filed in high volume. The problem was getting his money. Rigmaiden wants to stay hidden. Achieving that goal means he can't simply route the money into a nearby bank account. That exposes him to being identified. It was clear that every step that Daniel Rigmaiden took, it was to insulate himself from being detected. So Rigmaiden reaches out anonymously on websites and in chat rooms, looking for anyone in cyberspace willing to commit a felony crime with him. No names are shared, no identity is revealed, but Rigmaiden quickly builds a network of like-minded accomplices to help him with his scheme. 
they would keep their share of it, and they would then send by FedEx or some other means the remainder in cash to Rig Maiden. So there was no paper trail to him. One person who answers the call is 41-year-old Ransom Marion Carter III in Phoenix, Arizona. Carter's got a rap sheet for a variety of crimes. And now he's about to add tax fraud to the list. He was willing to open up a bank account. He was willing to walk into the bank and make that cash withdrawal to ultimately, we believe, then send the money back to Rick Maiden. Carter rents a mailbox in Phoenix to help move the money. But he's not nearly as clever as the hacker. And in early 2007, a store manager alerts Postal Inspector James Wilson that there's a problem. She had received numerous pieces of mail, what appeared to be envelopes that had credit cards in them going to this one particular subject's mailbox and different people's names to that address. 26 envelopes with 26 different names on them, all addressed to Ransom Carter's mailbox. Wilson soon discovers the envelopes all contain empty prepaid debit cards. There was no money on them at the time. And that's what arose my suspicion, like, all right, well, where is the money coming from? Meanwhile, IRS Special Agent Denise Medrano has her own puzzle to solve. She's been reviewing a large number of first-time tax returns, all filed by elderly California residents. It didn't make sense to us how an elderly individual would have filed a tax return for the very first time over a course of a lifetime. Many returns should be filed by a taxpayer. It turns out the filers are all deceased, and that's why they no longer appear in IRS databases. Digging further, Madrano discovers that $340,000 from 200 fraudulent returns are being sent to Ransom Marion Carter III in Phoenix. So that's how we, we put two and two together, and that's how Agent Madrano and I began to work together. Suspecting that the hacker recruits money mules such as Ransom Marion Carter III online, agents devise an undercover ruse. They pretend to be cyber criminals eager to help him. So we did exactly what Ransom Carter did, but using our own account, using a bank of our choosing to conduct the undercover operation. Their efforts lead them to the arrest of an accomplice in Utah, who is more than eager to cooperate to save his own skin. This confidential informant walks the agents through how the hacker moves the money around to escape detection. Our confidential informant was an intermediary from the hacker to low-level participants. The low-level participants would set up the accounts. The hacker would fund the account. They would make withdrawals on the accounts, and keeping their end of the bargain, they would bring money back to our confidential informant, and he would give the hacker his cut of the money. If only it were that easy. Although money is pouring into his network of accomplices, only a small amount has trickled back to the hacker. Instead of millions, he's only collected thousands, and Agent Wilson believes he's feeling impatient. I'm not yielding the return I want. I'm doing the brunt of all the work here. You're just mediating thing. I want my hit. The hacker tells the confidential informant he needs $68,000 immediately and he's willing to leave his campsite to get it. Using a stolen identity, he rents an apartment in Santa Clara, California, and sends the informant very specific instructions 
for how he wants the money delivered. We were to wash the cash in Coleman lantern fuel. We were supposed to package it in airtight packaging. Then he wanted to put it into a child's toy in some kind of box, wrapped up for like a gift, and then into a, a bigger box. The card on it was to be a birthday card with a message to a child who was dying of cancer. The hacker instructs the informant to mail the package to a FedEx in Palo Alto, California. But he's also very clear. He's desperate, and if anything goes wrong, there will be hell to pay. Five a.m., May seventh, two thousand eight. Federal agents watch closely as a mysterious man enters a Palo Alto FedEx to collect sixty-eight thousand dollars in cash stolen from the IRS. Is this finally the mysterious hacker they've been chasing? If so, he's taking no chances. The individual that had entered had a hoodie. You couldn't really see his face when he had to sign for the package. He held the pen in a very particular manner so that there weren't fingerprints left anywhere. He picked up the parcel, ducks into an alley, rips open the box, takes out the toy that had the money in it, shoves it in a backpack, takes all the packaging and dumps it in a dumpster so no one could find it. The agents are being extremely careful. The hacker's email rants have made it clear he's willing to kill if anything goes wrong. He was going to have a counter-surveillance team set up on him with assault weapons, and he was specific that if anything was to happen, there would be some kind of violent confrontation. Not sure this is really their man, and unwilling to put civilians' lives in danger, agents watch as the suspect climbs aboard a commuter train and disappears. Sixty-eight thousand dollars was a lot of money for us. But we had made the determination that we would let the money walk rather than jeopardize the investigation. The hacker thinks he's finally on a roll. Soon, he's demanding another $352,000 from his accomplices. But he doesn't stop there. His simmering anger and paranoid threats of violence take a sudden and disturbing turn, says Arizona Republic reporter Dennis Wagner. He had an idea for using drones to assassinate politicians. And then he also had an idea for using missiles to deliver biological or chemical warfare. The hacker's emails suggest a man on the verge of cracking once and for all. I'm probably the biggest single threat to the U.S. government, and they don't even know it. I can do things that will make all terrorist organizations look like sewing circles. But this bluster leads to Rig Maiden's undoing. Federal agents track an IP address on some of his emails to a computer located in Santa Clara, California, less than 20 miles from where the $68,000 disappeared. Now things started to mesh, and we were able to put things closer together and maybe say, are these two people related? But even better, agents discover he's been using a Verizon Air card to log on to the internet. Air cards connect to nearby cell towers the same way a cell phone does, opening the door for federal agents to finally turn technology against the hacker. It's a secret surveillance device called Stingray. They're about the size of a shoebox. Stingrays are cell site simulators, forcing all cellular devices in their vicinity, including the hacker's Verizon Air card, to share location and personal data. Federal agents are able to take this device and they can call a computer card or a cell phone and replace its 
operating system with their own so that they're able to ping on it and locate it. A stingray leads agents directly to an apartment complex in Santa Clara. A quick record search confirms they are closing in. All the personal identifiers on the rental agreement were all phony. They're all fake. So that's what we were able to get us to secure a warrant for that apartment complex in that unit. As agents wait to make their move, the hacker demands $352,000 be shipped to him the same way the first package was. The money was packaged in a toy. It was wrapped as a gift, had a card for a kid, and it was sent to the same location as the original one. Agents wait four long days for the hacker to make his move. When he finally does, this time they are ready. The hacker describes what happened next in a radio interview. I saw this guy kind of coming after me, so I started walking faster and he started speeding up. He tries to evade his pursuers, but this time his luck has run out. The instant I was getting arrested, when I was laying on the sidewalk getting handcuffs put on me, I instantly knew that they had tracked the air card down. It was the only weak link in the whole operation. Cuffed and out of options, the suspect still refuses to identify himself. The only thing in his pockets were a set of keys. There was no identification on him. Again, we still didn't know who this individual was. And when agents enter his apartment looking for answers, they find only more questions. He basically had a hammock in there and a desk lamp and a laptop computer. Lived a very simple existence. But agents also find what they are looking for gold and silver coins, and $47,000 in cash with matching serial numbers to the $68,000 that the hacker grabbed from the FedEx store in Palo Alto. In a nearby storage locker, agents discover another $70,000, more gold coins, and a stack of debit cards and fake IDs. That was a location that no one would ever find, and that was the place he can revert back to. If it got really hot, he can go to that place and pick that up and disappear. The hacker holds out to the end, refusing to identify himself. It will be days before his fingerprints are finally matched, and he is at last identified as Daniel Rigmaiden. Behind bars, Rigmaiden opts to defend himself against wire and mail fraud charges. He spends the next six years in jail fighting to get his case tossed. He argues that the Stingray technology used to track him down violated his Fourth Amendment protections against unlawful search and seizure. But his judge doesn't agree. This person who they were going after was not a person. He was an alias, he was a false name. And somebody using a false identity doesn't have a privacy right for that false identity. Therefore, Daniel Rigmaiden didn't have normal privacy rights. In 2014, Rigmaiden accepts a plea deal for his crimes and is sentenced to six years time served. Today, Daniel Rigmaiden still argues that the Stingray surveillance technology that took him down is a civil rights violation. He's also working on an autobiography that may finally shine some light on what made the hacker tick and what his endgame truly was. What was he doing with all the money? Where was it going? And the only person that could answer that question is Daniel Rigmaiden. Thanks for listening to the American Read Podcast, presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach.